We're in 1 Samuel chapter 19, if you want to open your Bibles there, and we'll continue in our study through this wonderful book, 1 Samuel. Title of the message today is Friends and Enemies. Everybody's got a few of each, don't they? Friends and Enemies. Now, as we, as we turn there, uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you recognize the name Aaron and Melissa Klein? Anybody recognize that name? Yeah, that's what I thought. Chances are you don't know their names, but you know their stories. You are, you're very familiar with their story. They are the Christian owners of a, bank, of a bakery in Oregon who declined to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding in January 2013. How many of you heard that story? Right? See, so you don't recognize the name, but you recognize the story. Now, gay rights groups immediately went ballistic, and they went national, they mobilized for war, they got all the news groups involved, uh, and, uh, and man, they launched protests, they launched pickets outside the family store, uh, they threatened the wedding vendors who did business uh, with this small bakery, and it escalated to the point to where the Kleins and their children even received death threats. That's how badly it has gotten. All of this because a family was uncomfortable participating in something that violated their faith. That's really what this all boils down to. Well, two months ago, the family was forced to close their business. And uh, now they are facing a $150,000 fine from the local government for the, the government there in, in the state of Oregon for uh, discrimination because they, they exercised their faith in this way. Now, the story is certainly a vivid example of the loss of religious freedoms in the United States. And it reveals a very real agenda to force biblical Christianity to bow at the altar of tolerance. It certainly is all of those things, and we could just have a message all on that and talk about the end times that we live in and, and so on, and, and how the Bible says, woe to those that call good evil and evil good. We could talk all about that. But there's another aspect of this that I want to focus on because the story also serves as an example of how people often react to perceived wrongs. What is human nature when we perceive that somebody has wronged us and what is it within us that reacts in the way that we do and specifically how we react? This story illustrates that perfectly. And what is it that we so often do when we perceive that we have been wronged by somebody? Well, one of the things that we do is we go recruiting, don't we? We go recruiting. We, we are in the mindset that says, I hate you, and I'm going to enlist as many people as I can to hate you too. I'm going to enlist as many people as I can to hurt you. And this is what we do. We go scorched earth. We go ballistic, right? And, and, and it's just human nature. Now, if you doubt that, I invite you just to go on to log into Bing and check out the reviews of any business, Now, I proved this point this week as I was putting this together and I had that thought that that's a great barometer, great litmus test of this truth that we do, in fact, go ballistic. We do, in fact, go scorched earth and we do say, man, I'm going to recruit. I hate you and I'm going to get other people to hate you too. So just randomly off the top of my head, first thing that came to mind, I typed it in, Carl's Jr. Temecula. 
just came into my mind. I don't know, maybe I was hungry for a bacon cheeseburger at the moment, but, but I just typed it in. And if you go there, you'll see seven reviews on Bing. One of them is a gag review. It doesn't count. But the other six, well, what are those reviews? Food is bad. Customer service sucks. The location is bad. The building is dirty. They made mistakes with my order. See, every single person was, man, I hate Carl's Jr. and you should too. That's basically what they were saying. And, and so what they're, what they're pleading for when they take the time to write these bad reviews is this central fact. Help me to hurt them. Because I have a perceived wrong that they had done to me. So I want you to help me hurt them by hitting them in the pocketbook, by not giving them your business. You say, well, what that, that's what being is all about. Yeah, but it proves my point about our basic human nature is that, you know, we have this attitude that says, man, I've perceived a wrong from you and I'm going to retaliate by getting other people together in my posse to, to come against you. So as we come now to 1 Samuel chapter 19, it's exactly where we find King Saul. He's recruiting. See, we left off with Saul boiling, you know, in his hatred of David. Just seething mad at David. Why? Well, because David has had the audacity to serve the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and and has had the favor of the Lord upon him to the extent that he is now receiving praise from the people. The women are singing his praises. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. Saul says, I will not take second billing. I will not take a back seat to David. This guy is a threat to me. What's left for him but the throne? Saul knows. He's already had the prophet Samuel come to him and say, listen, God's taken his Holy Spirit from you. He's giving it to someone else. And now Saul recognizes in David, here's the guy. So Saul is in protection mode and he is seething upset. And so last week we saw he's trying to kill David. And a few things he did last week that we looked at. He schemed uh, to draw David into a deadly battle. Wanted to get David in the place where he could put him in harm's way, have the enemy do his business for him. Saul's free and clear. And so he tried unsuccessfully to do that. Well, when that didn't work, he schemed to deny David what was rightfully his. He promised him his oldest daughter in marriage. And when the day came, Saul gave her away to somebody else. And no doubt, Saul's looking to, to provoke David, to anger to wrath, to an outburst. And so then giving Saul an opportunity to say, well, the guy's insubordinate. And so now I can take him out and and everybody will see, yeah, David shouldn't have done that. Well, David reacts in a godly way. Does he, he is not provoked to rebellion. And so Saul schemes again. He schemed to use David's dexterity against him. How so? Well, he asked him to operate in his own strength. That's what he was hoping for. He said, look, I'll give you my daughter Michael in marriage, and you can have her, but you know what? I want you to go out and kill 100 Philistines. He was hopeful that David would be blinded by his own ambition to to get the girl and, and operate outside of God's will in his own strength in harm's way yet again. The scheme didn't work. David went out. He performed faithfully. He didn't kill 100. He killed 200. Didn't work for Saul. So Saul schemed again, and now we left off with Saul scheming to determinally seek opportunities to kill David. It said that he was his enemy continually, 24-7, which means that in Saul's heart and in Saul's mind, he's eyeballing David, just looking for the first chance he can have to kill him. 
And as we continue today, what we're going to see is that Saul now, his determined efforts to kill David have become even more overt in the sense that Saul now is looking to recruit others into his deadly plan. Now, we're going to look at four things today. We're going to look at the provocation of King Saul. We're going to look at the peacemaking of Jonathan. We're going to look at the perjury of Michael. And we're going to look at the prudence of David. Let's pick it up where we left off. 1 Samuel chapter 19, we begin in verse 1, and it says, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Now stop right there and give me your attention for a minute. My first point, write it down, the provocation of King Saul. This is what we see here. The provocation of King Saul. See, Saul here is blinded by his emotions. He's absolutely, completely consumed with me, myself, and I, and all of his emotions, right? And, and so what happens here is Saul's got a guy that he sees as a threat to his empire, and Saul wants him dead, but Saul's got a big problem. What is his big problem? Well, David is God's choice. He's God's man. He's the man that has God's spirit upon him. And so Saul has a big problem because he's perceiving someone as an enemy who is, in fact, God's anointed. Super, super big problem for David. And here's the problem. Saul is so self-centered and he is so self-absorbed that he's completely blind to God's will and to God's provision. Absolutely the case. You know, if you read in the book of James, it asks the question, James says, where do fights and quarrels come from among you? Don't they come from your desires that dwell within? And the implication is a selfish, self-centered, man-centered desire that dwells within. James 1.20 says this, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And there's a perfect example here with Saul. See, because think about this from God's perspective. David is the one who killed Goliath. David is the one who is victoriously leading the troops of Israel. David is the one who has God's spirit upon him. David is the one who has a unique leadership gifting where the people just follow after. He just knows how to lead men. He's gifted especially by God as a a fighting man with God's favor. David's the one through whose lineage the Messiah is going to come. But see, Saul is so blinded by his anger, he can't see any of that. Saul isn't mindful of the things of God. He's mindful of the things of men. You might think, you know, it brings to my remembrance Matthew 16. There's that section of scripture there where, you know, Jesus is telling his disciples that, you know, he's about to go and to be crucified and and telling them everything that's going to, to come down. And Peter does not like what Jesus is saying. Prior to this, Peter was in the spiritual zone. Jesus had asked, you know, hey, who do men say that I am? And they're saying, oh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, you know. And and he's like, but but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed to this to you, Simon. My spirit has revealed this to you. You're seeing things from a spiritual perspective, and that's good. Now, 
right on the heels of that, as you read through that in, in, in the gospel, this is the very next thing that happened. Jesus segues and said, okay, now let me tell you about what's going to happen. And I'm, the Son of Man's going to be persecuted. He's going to be given up. And, and Peter takes him aside and he rebukes him. Rebukes Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Right? And, and, and what does he tell him? He says, you're not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful the things of the flesh. Now, just, I mean, I, I, I'm encouraged a lot of times when I look at Peter, because Peter's a guy who, who's got chronic foot and mouth disease. He's a guy who, 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 who vacillates. One day he's on a spiritual mountain, the other day he's in the spiritual valley. I'm comforted, because we're like that, aren't we? There are those moments in our life where, where Jesus might say to us, blessed are you. Man, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. My spirit's doing a sweet work in your heart and you're hearing from me and you're in tune with my spirit and we rejoice in those moments. And, and, and just like Peter, in the next breath, we, we feel the spirit saying to us, you know, get behind me, Satan. You're, be, you're not being mindful of the things of God. You're being mindful of the things of the flesh. What's exactly what's going on here? Saul isn't mindful of the things of God. He doesn't have the wherewithal to go, well, yeah, look at this. This is the guy that killed Goliath. This is the guy that's leading my forces in battle. This is the guy that has victory left and right. This is the guy who clearly has a leadership gifting, who has God's spirit upon him. And, and Saul doesn't see things in that perspective. No, Saul is so blinded by his flesh, so blinded by his anger. Man, all he can see is that, hey, this guy is an enemy. We can be that way too, can't we? But we can be blinded by our emotions not to recognize, you know what, this, this person right here, yeah, they're, they're not my enemy. But we, but we can make them our enemy. We, we can be provoked to anger when we're in the flesh. And so Saul's a king with drama. That's what's going on. And there's a lot of drama kings and queens, right, that we have to interact with. We, we, we interact all the time. And what's the one thing that every drama queen wants to do? They want to draw you into their drama, don't they? Absolutely. Someone's provoked to anger. We want to, you know, oh, oh, drama, and I want to draw everybody into my drama. There's drama on Facebook. There's drama on Twitter. There's drama at work. There's drama at school. There's drama on the kids' soccer team. You want to talk about drama. There's, there's, there's drama on the, the softball field. Let's talk about that. There's drama everywhere you turn. And, and the person that, 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 is, that, is being, that has been provoked... Man, they are just wanting to draw and to gather a posse. Let me draw everybody into my drama. I have no doubt right now you're thinking about a situation where you're like, that's exactly what's happening. They got drama, they're trying to draw me into their drama, and so often we get suckered in to the drama, don't we? To our shame, man. And so this is, this is what happens is you've got these drama kings and queens trying to draw people into the drama. We got drama in all these different areas. And you know where else we, we have drama? Drama in the church, don't we? It happens. You get a body of believers together, we're gathered together to worship the Lord, and, and what is frequently there? Man, there's drama. There's drama, which is a problem because Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. But we as churches, we so often are known for our drama. 
we so often are known for, you know, there's some spiritual thing, some discussion board, some, you know, whatever, Facebook discussion. And, and, and more often than not, it's not the atheists that are fighting. It's the Christians that are fighting back and forth between one another, right? It happens over and over again. Now, some of us need to take a good long look in the mirror where that's concerned. And we need to just realize that our drama is because usually we're mindful of the things of men. And we're not mindful of the things of God. And we just need to take a walk with that. You know, when Jesus was here on the earth, he made a promise and a prayer that were inextricably linked. The promise that Jesus made was in Matthew 16, 18. I'll throw it on screen for you. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This was Jesus' promise. Now, his prayer in John 17, and he prayed this. He said, I pray that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, And you and me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. Now, this is consistent with the question that Jesus answered when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus' answer, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the greatest commandment, he said. And he said, the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, hinge all the law and the prophets. In other words, every book of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible are all summed up in those two commandments. Love God and love others. But loving others isn't as easy as loving God, is it? No, it's not. You know, the greatest threat to the church isn't from the outside, it's from the inside. This is why Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, said this. He said, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, in this scripture, you'll notice that word divisions, and that, divi- that word divisions in the Greek, it's the word schizo. We get the word schism from that word, and it means to rip or tear apart. Paul's saying, you know, there, you guys shouldn't rip and tear each other apart. Now, having said that, how many of you have experienced Christians ripping and tearing each other apart? How many of you have experienced a church split? When people rip, and tear each other apart. It's been said the only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions, running one another down, and stabbing each other in the back, right? But what did Jesus say? Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Which leads us to our second point this morning in our text. We see the peacemaking of Jonathan. Not only do we see the provocation of King Saul, but we see the peacemaking of Jonathan. We pick it up again. Saul trying to gather a posse. He spoke to Jonathan, his son, to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Verse 2, so Jonathan told David, saying, my father Saul seeks to kill you. 
Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. You say, oh, he ratted his father out, huh? That's what, that's what he did. Listen, and I'm not going to get into this in my, in my notes, but I, ju- I just say this. I have this written in the margin of my Bible. Loyalty to what's right trumps loyalty to family. Loyalty to what's right trumps loyalty to family. And that's exactly the dynamic that's going on here. So Jonathan told David, he, he said, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you, and then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to his father. And he said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he's not sinned against you. And because his works have been very good toward you, Dad. They've been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. You thought it was great when it happened, Dad. You saw it. Why then? Will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? And so Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all of these things. And so Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. The peacemaking of Jonathan. Now I want you to notice there in verse 4 that rather than being enticed by Saul, To kill David. Rather than being enticed, Jonathan spoke well of David. King Solomon said this. He said, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. See, as Christians in the body of Christ, you and I are called to be peacemakers. And in order for us to to be a peacemaker, we have to speak well of and defend our fellow Christians from attack. We, We are called to do that. Now, let me ask you a question. Rather than doing that, what are we often tempted to do in these situations when somebody comes to us and they say, you will never guess what so-and-so did. You've got some mutual friend and they're, and they're gossiping and they're backbiting about this friend and, and they're complaining, they're gossiping. Well, we've got three options at that point. When a person comes to us and they start to unload on us and we've all experienced, have we not? When someone comes to us saying, hey, look, here's what's going on. And and this is really important, by the way, for us to tune into this. Because this is a very real day-to-day dynamic that we're going to deal with. As long as we have relations with other people and we're interconnected relationally, this is going to be an issue. Because even though the Bible commands that we, when we have an offense with our brother, that we should go to our brother, how often... Do we obey that? Who is it that we go to? Anybody? Anyone? Who do we go to? 
Or friends, other people. We go, it's so much easier for me to talk about you to somebody else than it is me talk to your face, right? And we all do it. And we're not supposed to do it. We're supposed to go one to another. We're supposed to work it out. So when you have someone who comes to you in this way, seeking, you know, Jesus said, if, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody else, that you've, you've committed murder in your heart, right? And so it is this situation where I've got this murderous, and I would never kill them, but I'm angry with them. So what do I do is I assassinate their character. I come talk to you and say, I'm so mad at, at you know, whatever. I, it just, I, I, I can't see straight. And, and I talk to you and I unload on you. Now you got three options when you're in that position. Somebody's been provoked to anger. They come to you. Now what are you going to do? Well, you can join them in their slander, right? Oh, I know. Don't you hate it when they do that? You'll never guess what they did to me. They did this to me. You think that's bad, right? So you can join them in their slander, or you can remain silent, which is almost as bad, right? If, if you came to my wife and you started talking bad about me, and she just sat there silently and let you talk, would I feel betrayed? You bet I would. What, what, what do I want my wife to do? I want my wife to punch you in the nose. That's what I want her to do. <laughs> I want her to defend me. I want her to speak well of me, right? So you can, either, you can either join them in their slander, you can sit and remain silent, or you can do what Jonathan did and you can speak well. You can speak well of the person. Now what I love about Jonathan's response, and granted, King Saul is his father, it's his dad. Maybe he has a little more, more license to talk to him, but what I love about his response, here the king comes in all of his power, and he's, he's notably a hothead. He's notably a man who is just given to, to fits of anger. We're going to see King Saul throw a spear at his son uh, in, in the coming chapter. So, so, you know, we know that Saul's given to fits of rage, but what I love about Jonathan's response is that he's not intimidated by his hothead king father, but rather he speaks well. He speaks well. Now, we need to take special note of how Jonathan spoke well of David. This is very instructive for us. And I want you to pay, if you hear nothing else I say all day today, these next several points, pay close attention because this for us is very instructive when we are in that situation. And this is one of those rare messages where 100% of the people here sitting here today, this applies to in a daily practical application. Okay, so what do you do if you're going to speak well of somebody? When somebody else comes, they want to assassinate somebody else's character. They're angry with someone else. How can you operate practically as a peacemaker? The first thing I want you to take note of what Jonathan does, he corrects Saul. He corrects Saul. He, sa- he asks him the question, he says, or rather he makes the statement to him, he says, he has not sinned against you. See, when you have somebody who comes to you and they begin to unload, it is your responsibility as a peacemaker to speak the truth. And so, and what we do when I'm angry, when you're angry, when I'm just going off on someone, what do we do? We have a tendency to exaggerate, is what we do. We have a tendency to blow things out of proportion. So, so what's, what, Jonathan does here is he corrects Saul and he says, he has not sinned against you. You take that back. Dad, that's not true. And, 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 and so makes it very clear to refute the lie. 
Because this is what Satan does. He stirs things up, gets us to a place where we believe a lie. That's been his tactic from the beginning, that we should believe the lie. And so the first thing Jonathan does, and write it down because it needs to be the first thing you do in this situation, is he corrects him. He corrects him, and oh, he has not sinned. Second thing, he reproves Saul. He reproves him. He says, Dad, don't sin in this way. What you're doing is sin. You need not to do this. And you need to be bold enough. The Bible says it's an enemy that multiplies kisses. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. You and I have to be those true friends who are going to say to our brother or our sister when they come to us assassinating someone else, we need to be able to tell them, hey, this is sin. Don't do this. Don't don't act in sin in this way. And this is exactly what Jonathan does. He tells his dad, don't sin in this way. What's the third thing he does? He reminds Saul. He reminds Saul. He says, listen, his works have been very good towards you. Again, this is what peacemakers do. When someone comes and they're unloading and they're, and they're so terribly upset and they begin to exaggerate things out of proportion, you as a peacemaker need to be able to point out and say, look, this is your friend. And, and, and his works have been very good towards you. And, and so you need, to, you need to make a point of, of, of reminding. So not just correcting, not just reproving, not just reminding, but there's one other thing that you need to note, very important. What does he do? He operates in complete transparency. Jonathan operates in complete transparency. What do I mean by that? Well, he tells David, what I observe, I will tell you. Okay? What does that mean? Here's what it means. What it means is that Jonathan is not going to be two-faced. He's not going to be two-faced. How many times Have you been in a position where you tell one friend one thing and you tell another friend the other thing, right? And and, and you get in that place, why? Well, because you're in no man's land and you just want to keep the peace and you don't want anybody upset with you. And, And there are so often when we will walk 10 miles around an issue to avoid having to deal with that issue. And so a lot of times in these delicate situations, one friend comes and they want to unload on another friend and, 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 and you just, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to be one way with them and then you meet with the other person and you're a complete different way with them. And you, and you, won't, you won't, you know, operate in the truth. Now, Jonathan isn't two-faced. He, he says to David, look, I'm going to talk to my dad. And whatever he says, I'm going to tell you. Jonathan is steady, he's consistent, and listen, this is how healthy churches and families operate. This is how healthy churches and families operate. What do we do? We say the hard things. We speak the truth in love. And so if we're caught in this situation, and the next time you're caught in this situation, you need to understand, no, 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 my responsibility is to, to not to, to, to sit here in silence. My responsibility is not to join them in their slander, but rather my responsibility is to speak well of that person and to function as a peacemaker. And so I need to hear what this person says and say, look, look, look. And first of all, by the way, the, the, when someone comes to you, the first thing out of your mouth ought to be, hey, why are you talking to me? 
Man, you need to sit down and talk to them. That's the first thing. That's biblical. Man, go talk to them. Don't unload on me. And often what happens is people will, you know, a Christian will give that lip service. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. But, you know, I just need to, I just need somebody to hear me. I just need to vent. How many times have you heard that? I just need to vent. Right? So you're going to spew all over me. All right. Well, then what you need to do is to say, okay, if you're going to spew all over me, then what you're going to hear from me is I'm going to correct you. I'm going to reprove you. I'm going to remind you. And you also got to know that I'm going to operate in complete transparency. That whatever you tell me, I'm going to tell them. Why? Not because they're your enemy and not because I'm siding with them and I now am your enemy. No, because I'm your friend. And this is what friends do. Again, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so, so this is so critically important. Now hold that thought. And I want you to consider what happens next in our story. Pick it up in verse 8. It says, and there was war again. Now, by the way, again, what's the tone? Where are we at? Where did we leave it off in verse 7? Jonathan functioned as a peacemaker. And what was the effect? What was the result? It worked. Saul was convicted and he said, you're right. I'm not going to kill him. And, 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 I, and I think what he spoke was legit. I don't think he was just biding his time. I think it was legit. And so he says, all right, you're right. And then he came in, Saul repented, things were good. But, verse 8, there was war again. David went out and he fought with the Philistines and he struck them with a mighty blow and they fled from him. David, just being who he is, he's a faithful man of God. God's got, he's got God's favor, he's got God's spirit upon him. Well, verse 9, now the distress, distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing music with his hand. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. Now, what's going on here? Again, The same situation, right? There's war again. David goes out, and what happens is this selfish, self-centered, fleshly response is provoked within Saul again as he's yet reminded, this is God's anointed, and I used to be God's anointed, but now it's him. And so what does he do? It all comes back. And again, if you were with us when we went through, because it says in verse 9 that the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and that's kind of troubling, but basically what we need to understand is that God, he, he, just, he left the door open. It's like if your dog runs away because somebody let the door out. Did they, did they you know, make your dog run away? No, but they left the door open for your dog to run away. And that's the idea here is that God leaves the door open. He is not going to force his will upon you. You are a free moral agent. You can choose to follow him. You can choose to reject him. And Saul in this place now, he chooses with this opportunity of God's will unfolding in his life, he chooses to take offense. He chooses to be that person in that place who's, who's going to, to, to be provoked to anger within himself. And so now the situation rises up again. Saul blows out and he grabs his spear. He wants to just run David through. He wants to kill him again. But he, David, slipped away, verse 10, from Saul's presence. And he, Saul, drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. You think? Verse 11, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. 
And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. She's like, look, David, I know my dad. You better run. You better run, man. So this is what she says. So Michael, verse 12, let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. This image, this word, is a very particular word. And what it's describing, it would be, the best equa- equivalent that I could give you is that, you know, if you know somebody who's in the Catholic religion, they have a lot of statues and so on. So this would be like a statue of Jesus kind of thing. This is the equivalent that the, the Jews would have these statues. Um, and, and these would be the things that they would, as an, as an image, remind them of God and they would actually use it in their worship. It's sinful practice. Uh, God, you know, says that we're not to have any carved images, you know, and, and yet they would do this. And the fact that David's wife does this kind of speaks to her upbringing, something she brought into the marriage, kind of speaks of the, the undisciplined, unyielded un, uh, sort of lackadaisical religious life that she had at home. Um, the fact that she still had it uh, probably uh, speaks to, you know, a little bit of a lapse on David's part. But nevertheless, that's what she did. She, take, she took this statue kind of thing and she places it in the bed. She put a cover of goat's hair for its head. Escape from Alcatraz kind of deal right here, okay? She's just setting up the dummy there in the bed. Uh, so when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. You can imagine the scene. The soldiers come back. They're like, well, he's, de- he, he's sick, uh, so we couldn't bring him. He's like, I'm going to kill him. I don't care if he's sick. Bring him here, you know, kind of thing. And so this is what's going on. Verse 16, and when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? Now, right here, right in this moment, Michael has an opportunity. What's the opportunity? It's the same opportunity that Jonathan had. Right here in this moment, what Michael could have done and should have done was to respond just the same way that Jonathan did and, 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 and gone right to her dad to say, hey, listen, you need to be corrected. You need to be reproved. You need to be reminded. She does none of those things. What does she do? It says, and Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? My third point, the perjury of Michael. Listen, rather than correcting and reproving and reminding Saul... Michael plays both, th- both sides. Michael is playing both sides. She told David, hey, run. My dad's going to kill you. I'll help you get away. I'll make the, you know, the, the little whatever, the, 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 the image there in the bed, Frank Morris, and you can get out from Alcatraz kind of deal. I'll take care of that part. Then Saul comes around, and, and what does she do? Well, she plays both sides. Now she's like, oh, you know what? He said he was going to kill me. I had to let him go, you know? I, you know, I would I would I would have... I would have stood in there for you, Dad. But man, he, you know, he threatened me. Don't give me a show of hands, but how many of you have friends like this? Seriously, how many of you have friends like this? They won't take a stand for you. 
right? They, 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 just, they offer no correction, no reproof, no reminders. They're just, you know what? They're just playing both sides of the fence. What she do? She deflects the whole thing with a lie. Oh, yeah, Dad, you think David's a bad guy? He mistreated me too. You, 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 I totally would have helped you kill him, Dad, but he threatened to kill me. She doesn't call on Saul to, you know, she doesn't call him on his sin like Jonathan did. She throws David right under the bus and she plays both sides of the fence. I want you to answer this question honestly in your heart. Have you ever done that? Do you do that? Is that, is that you? Do you want to go to such lengths to avoid conflict that you play both sides of the fence in your relationships? Man, it's something to take a walk with. Because what the Lord would have us to do is to correct, to reprove, to remind. And so often, what do we do? We chicken out. Now you go, oh, well, you know, she, she was afraid. She's just protecting herself. Her dad's a hothead. Tell that to Jonathan. Because he was in the exact same situation. We saw how it worked when he did things God's way. When he was a peacemaker, his father repented and said, oh, you're right. You're right. But Michael, no, she's like, oh, yeah, I get it. I'll play both sides of the fence. I'll tell you he's a bad guy until he tried to, to, to kill me. And so often for us, man, if we're honest, we take the chicken exit too. A lot of times when I'm in counseling with somebody and they'll have some sort of situation, they come to see me and I'll take them into God's word and I'll say, look, here's, here's what the word of God says. And oftentimes a response that I'll get from the person is, yeah, but, and they, they want to give me more information and tell me why they're the exception to the rule. And, and what I always like to do and, and point out is to say, look, I know that what I'm telling you sounds scary. I know that what the Lord prescribes for you to do seems like a longer, harder road. But what you need to understand is that all of your yeah buts and the things that you want to do, and I always like to say to people, sometimes I do, I'm like, well, how's how's that working out for you? Because you're clearly here to see me because it's not. You know, and so what I try to say is, look, Satan is the father of lies, and what he does is he's always there with a counterfeit. He's always there with a shortcut. He's always there to say, hey, look, you know, you don't have to do all that. You can play both sides of the fence, man. You can be Mr. Neutral, you know, and, and, and thing, things are cool. And so, so you know, the, just do that. Man, God's way seems hard, but it's the right way. And this is one of those huge areas that I see damage relationships all the time. Write this verse down, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. How many of you, let me, let me just ask you this. Again, not a show of hands, but are you with me? How many of you have been on the receiving end of a friend who played both sides? when you were in the position of David? How many of you have been in that position of David where someone is assassinating you and you didn't have a friend that stood up for you but rather they played Mr. Neutral, played both sides, you know, there, they just want to, you know, and how betrayed, it sucks, doesn't it? Nobody likes to be in that place. Well, if you've been there, and if you haven't, you just don't remember because you've been there. Listen, pay attention because we need to understand how do, we, how do we handle it we're on the receiving end. 
when you are on the receiving end, when you're in David's shoes, how are you supposed to handle these things? Because we've seen from the perspective of Saul the provoker, the guy who initiates the attack, the attack. How, how he's, he's operating in the flesh, he's not operating in the spirit. We understand that if we're operating in the spirit, we're not going to respond that way. We've seen from the perspective of David the peacemaker, who, who works to, to stop the attack by taking the bold steps that he's supposed to take. We've seen from the, the perspective of Michael the perjurer, who plays both sides of, of the fence here. Now let's see it from David's perspective. We look at, fourthly, the prudence of David. Look at verse 18. It says, So David fled and escaped, and he went to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and stayed in, in Naoth. Okay, so, so here's what happens. We're seeing the prudence of David. Let me ask you a question. When you've been in the position of David, what is the, what is the most prevalent thought and feeling that rises to the top? It's either retaliation or it's I need to defend myself or it's, you know, all of these, these other things. And who does David run to in this situation? He runs, if I can use 2015 terms, he runs to his pastor. He runs to Samuel. He, he, he didn't run his mouth off to their mutual friends. David, he, he didn't send out a bunch of drunk texts, you know. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? You get the guy that loses it and he sends all these texts out to everybody. You're like, well, that was a drunk text right there, you know. Somebody just like had a few too many drinks and they just said everything on their own. That's, the, that's what drunk text is, it means for those of you not in the know. Some people, they send out texts and you read it and you're like, this guy must have been drunk when he sent this. He said all kinds of stuff that he shouldn't have said, you know. David doesn't do that. He's not running his mouth off to his friends. He's not sending out drunk texts. He didn't post it all over Facebook, don't you hate the, I'm so angry right now. What are they doing? They're fishing. They're trolling. Why are you angry? You know? Well, you know, if you have to know, John said this to me, you know. He doesn't do any of that stuff. What does David do? He ran to a godly friend and he told him everything. He sought his counsel. Maybe write that down in your notes. Run to a godly friend. Run to godly counsel. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Again, Proverbs 24.6, For by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Again, who does David run to? Look, I see two people he runs to here. He runs to his wife, and he runs to his pastor. Who didn't David run to? Anyone else. Didn't run to anyone else. Now, when this whole mess started, when Saul was provoked to anger, who was it that Saul ran to? Anybody who would help him kill David. That's important. Saul ran to anybody that's going to help him kill David. Let me ask you the question. Who do you run to when you're provoked? Who do you run to when you're attacked. See, you need to run to a godly counselor, to a godly friend 
who won't, you know, take sides with you, who won't conspire with you to kill, but rather somebody who will be able to point you to the Lord and say, look, here's how you need to go. Here's how you need to respond. This is how you cannot sin in this situation. Well, there's one other person David ran to. And I want to close looking at this. He ran to God. Turn to Psalm 59. We'll close here. Psalm 59. Psalm 59. Notice the introduction to the psalm. It says, To the chief musician... Set to do not destroy. That's the tune. The Psalms were songs. These are these are these are songs. You know that are written here. Uh, a a Mitchum of David. When Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. This is this is how this is this is David in the Psalm worshiping God, talking about this very issue that we're reading about here in First Samuel nineteen. So what, is, what, what do we see in David's heart and in his mind? Well, he cries out to God, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloodthirsty men. And as you read, he begins to say, This is what they're doing, God. This is who they are, God. Get them, God. You deal with them, God. And, he, and so he's going on, and then he says, to, he reaches this conclusion in verse 9. He says, I will wait for you, O you, his strength, for God is my defense. Listen, what David does by the counsel of the godly counselor that he went to, he doesn't turn to friends, to Facebook, sending out drunk texts, anything like that. He goes to God and he says, God, you see, you know, you care, and I need you to deal with this, God, and I need you to help me to deal with this, Lord. I need you to deliver me from this. And one last thing, if I could just point out in the introduction, it says that this is a Mitchum of David. What is that? Well, the translation is golden or precious. Listen, here's what you need to understand. What this ordeal and experience that David was going through, it may have been horrible. It may have been unbearable for him. But what David came to realize, this is golden and precious. Nothing's wasted with God. He's allowed you to be in a situation where you're attacked and where your friends have let you down. Listen, God hasn't lost your address He hasn't lost your number. He knows what's going on in your life. And you know what? He's doing something golden and precious in it. And what we're going to see here and what we're going to get into next week is is how God is now using all of these situations and circumstances to mold and to fashion David and to get him ready to be the king of Israel. God is conditioning David. And that makes this experience golden and precious.